Welcome to Technology and Security. TS is a podcast exploring the intersections of emerging technologies and national security. I'm your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Study Center, and we're based in the University of Sydney. My guest today is Alex Lynch. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here. Alex manages Google Australia's public policy engagement in relation to emerging technologies. This includes artificial intelligence, quantum computing, as well as digital communication, technology supply chains, and trade and investment. Prior to joining Google, Alex consulted on crisis and strategic reputation management and was formerly a national security practitioner in New Zealand. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Gadigal people. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging here and wherever you're listening. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, sea and community and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. So Alex, 2023 is shaping up to be huge in the tech policy space. Indeed. What are the key issues you and Google Australia or Google Global are thinking about? It's an incredibly complex space. Uh, If you even just read the papers, you'll see concerns ranging from tech supply chains to geopolitical decoupling. You'll see concerns about artificial intelligence and these new large language models coming to market. You'll see a... Um, people investing in cloud computing, transitioning, and that very macro change we're seeing at the moment from on-premises computing to cloud systems. You're seeing cybersecurity concerns. You're seeing privacy concerns. You're seeing a raft of issues, all of which are interesting debates for society to have and very interconnected as well. Access to the best tech talent is often billed as a huge issue and Google has been the breeding ground for a lot of remarkable innovations. How does that access to tech innovation and tech talent globally work out in Australia? You can find clusters of really great people all around the world, including from our part in Australia. About half of our business here is on the engineering side. Um, They work on a variety of products. I think maybe some of the audience might not have heard, but most people know these days, at least in my circles, that Google Maps was uh, created almost or um, the conception of that was a startup that was an Australian startup. And we still have a big Google Maps team working in Australia on those, what is a global product. Australia has, and we have been working with the universities here for a long time to try and make sure that the universities are creating talent that is fit for our local engineering team. Right Now we are not just competing with technic- for technical talent and high-end technical talent with between ourselves, Atlassian, and other big employers locally of pure play tech companies. What we are seeing now is a huge whole of economy uptake of technical talent. Uh, Commonwealth Bank, I think, has more than 5,000 people, for example. And that is a necessity for all these companies that are now transitioning into cloud-based systems, but who are also trying to look at what they have, their assets, their data assets in particular, and how they use those. And so we've gone from a situation with sort of a a very high-end talent pool, and you'll see, depending on what technical area it is, for example, AI, used to have have to have a PhD to be an AI practitioner. The tool set and the supporting infrastructure has now been built out so that you need a far lower level of technical capability to invest in AI or or be a practitioner in AI. And quantum computing is at the opposite end of that scale where you are, you still very much need to do the maths. Um, We are looking at the spread of this talent across the economy and increasingly as all all, all, um, companies, large companies in particular institutions, private sector and government to think about how they can use these new tools, how they can get access to all that talent. And it's a highly competitive environment. We often hear that Australia has an advantage in quantum. Um, Can you explain why this is? And in that answer, could you give us a little bit about the quantum ecosystem in Australia? Yeah, of course. Um, 
Australia has something to be proud of in this area, and and part of it is as we saw in the US in the past, where um, you know the traditional digital champions were created there as a result of a long period of government investment in science and technology, oftentimes through DARPA, through organisations like Bell Labs. In Australia, we have seen a long-term commitment to quantum science and research in Australia. And so Australia has developed this research advantage in quantum. We are working on a quantum computer at Google. Now, that research in terms of the hardware side is largely taking place in the United States. But what Australia has, um, and we are deeply partnering between these hardware specialists in the US and software specialists in Australia, what we have is a situation where we have really great quantum algorithms people and this is just one small subset of Australia's research community but I'll use it as an example of where we can punch above our white and white why we matter globally these quantum algorithm specialists are looking at how to make more efficient algorithms because what we need to know is how big the quantum computer we need to build is so that we can perform meaningful computations now these quantum algorithm specialists are looking at you know if you want to solve a quantum chemistry problem how many qubits do you need to enable that computation and they're constantly refining that and bringing that number down. And on the US side, they're thinking about how can we increase the number of qubits in our machine such that we can actually make these computations possible. So there's this two-tiered piece where the Australian researchers are, are building more efficient algorithms and the hardware people in the US are trying to get to the point where they can compute those algorithms. And, and how does that sit with the um, recent quantum announcement from Google about uh, improved error correction? Mm. So this is a huge, what we think is a huge step forward in quantum science. What we see now when people talk about quantum computers, they talk about these noisy intermediate scale quantum computers or NISC computers. And that is essentially each qubit is a single computational piece, like a, like a binary computer, a one or a zero, although quantum computers have phase as well as, um, as that sort of binary one and zero piece. So they're more complex, but the nature of quantum computation is such that any kind of interaction, what we call measurement, but it's just a measurement can be as simple as one tiny particle bouncing off another. Each measurement can cause an error, cause a bit to flip or an error in that quantum machine. And so when we're talking about how we build a computer of meaningful scale, it quickly becomes impossible to just build up the number of qubits. You need what we call a logical qubit, which is an error-corrected qubit, something we can be sure that the answer it gives is consistent. The latest announcement essentially says we have reduced the errors in this quantum machine as we increase the number of qubits, which means that eventually we will be able to create very, very large-scale quantum devices that can solve these problems we want to solve. Now, to give you some conception of where the scientists think quantum computing is, as opposed to other areas of quantum, which are more near-term, they talk about creating the vacuum tubes of quantum computing, not even the transistors. We have 14-plus billion, if I recall correctly, transistors in the latest iPhone, and at the moment we're getting to you know, one logical qubit. We will need millions or billions of these things to perform meaningful computations. So I think that's one step in a really long journey. It's a long journey. You have kind of talked a little bit there about the hardware and the software. Can you, you know, in, in the context of Australia's advantage in this, can you just kind of clarify there where we sit in the other parts of that ecosystem? Yeah, so um, we have specialists in a number of quantum areas, quantum sensing, which is a near-term piece, which looks at, you know, can you look at very, very tiny measurements? And this is where quantum comes into its own, because our world is sort of based upon a quantum substrate, um, which feels very tangible to us because everything's being measured all the time, it's collapsing into reality, but quantum allows you to measure very, very small things in the quantum sensing space. So gravitational fields or 
things like um, you know electromagnetic fields. So these things could be consistent across the surface of the Earth. They could be variable in different places. So you may have a future GPS-esque system that is based upon quantum sensing. Or you could have communication systems that are cryptographically secure based on quantum communication principles. And so these things are coming down the pipeline in the nearer term than, than full-scale quantum computers, but we need to understand these principles because they'll give us particular advantages, and particularly in the sort of military and defence space. Yeah, absolutely. And um, quantum encryption is kind of often referred to as the holy grail and one of the, you know, a key area that defence really focuses on. I want to touch here on the conversation about technological innovation and, you know, dual civil military use technologies, kind of drawing out that quantum discussion. You know, historically, many technologies were developed within the military and shared outward, whereas now, you know, that's flipped and many of these are developed in tech companies and moved into defence and security. How do you see that this will evolve and what does that mean for Google? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? You are absolutely hitting the nail on the head when you say that the preponderance of R&D is now done. It's not government funded in the West, and you know, largely speaking of the US here from our perspective, but they are, but primarily R&D is done in the private sector. And we see that in Australia as well. That is a change from the past where, in particularly during the Cold War era, it was very government-based. So that means that we need to think carefully about you know, as we, we have different perspectives and different principles as private sector companies than does defence, and we need to be comfortable having conversations, um, sharing technology in a way that we didn't have to think about in the past. Things that we put in the world into the world, you look at our AI principles, for example, they preclude any kind of use that may result in harm. And, um, you know, the military has a very different perspective of the use of harm to defend the national sovereignty or priorities. Uh, how we resolve that our inability to or our unwillingness to use technology in that domain, which I think is a principal stance that a private sector company should be comfortable with, how do we resolve that with the need to explore those military technical uses? And a lot of that will be done as a result of public publication of these sorts of research streams. And we might not want to do anything ourselves in that area, but we don't preclude publicly published research from being used for other purposes. As a global company, how does Google think about security? By design is the short answer. That's um, an innovation that we sort of pioneered security by design in all our products. So it should not be an afterthought. How do you defend these systems you've created? It should be how are these systems intrinsically defensible because of the way that you create them. We also look at things like we pioneered um, zero trust systems, for example. So this sort of cybersecurity innovation has been at the core of what we do because we have obviously a very large potential attack surface for people. The, the data that we keep just by providing an email service, for example, is very valuable in particular intelligence contexts, and we have experienced in the past people getting access to our systems. So now we take a very, very proactive, front-foot, innovative approach to security. We've pioneered a bunch of these cybersecurity principles that are now being baked into other organisations, and we're continually looking at how we make sure our infrastructure is defended from the physical all the way through to the digital level so that we, we just have a very strong record of being difficult to attack. I guess, are there any lessons that, you know, that Google has learned that can be kind of drawn, you know, more domestically? Uh, yes, but I, I suspect those are very well known right now. We um, obviously have been the subject of attacks that were attacking um, unencrypted data traveling between bits of our infrastructure in the past, and so we learned and adapted so that we are encrypted in transit, that we have data that is sharded across 
different data centers in different jurisdictions, so no one compromise can compromise a piece of data because it is they'd have to compromise data centers across various jurisdictions to enable that. And there is a tension there between discussions around data sovereignty, for example, and our security posture, which very much says this data is more secure if we can keep it away from everybody and keep it in multiple places so no one can get immediate access to it. You've amazingly preempted one of my questions. Excellent. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about data lo- localization and whether or not you think it makes us more secure. So a really great answer you've already given there. Um, can you kind of give us a bit more ab- about that um, various jurisdiction? Yeah, that's right. So um, we have data centers, very few of the larger ones, but we, ha- we have edge locations all around the world, including in Australia, where data can be stored locally if there's a requirement for that. And oftentimes that's a latency requirement for a customer. So the bank may not want to be bouncing at the signal to... Northern Europe or Scandinavia and have to bounce back from a big data centre, but they, they want a high latency local solution, which we can provide. But there is also um, there is security in making sure that no one actor can get their hands on the information and, and putting it in multiple jurisdictions so that it can't be attacked in that way, if indeed encryption was broken. That is a very, very secure way of doing things and has protected us, but it may not be desirable in all cases. You know, A government in some cases may want things stored locally. We, we would like we think security should be the priority overall and we think that your an Australian person's information is more secure if it is secure against any act at the moment of access it but we also understand that there are you know well we think our systems are extremely highly secure that is not the case for all companies or all platforms and so we can understand the argument for or desire for some sets of data to be kept locally but it's not only security that we think about this in terms of, we look at things like there are huge compute clusters that don't necessarily exist in Australia. Uh, uh, the future is not evenly distributed, as they always say. And so some places in the world, for example, we have a the first prototype quantum computer in Santa Barbara. Um, we don't have those in every country around the world, and it would be impossible and financially infeasible to build them in every country in the world. Likewise, we have these huge data centres that have huge computational capacity, not data storage capacity, but the ability to run large algorithms across the data or train AI on the data. And these things are located in different jurisdictions. And so if you have uh, something, you know, for example, a legislative instrument that says you cannot take a certain kind of data outside Australia, that means we couldn't compute algorithms on it. For example, if you take the attacks that are being made against Australians, email addresses or spam to their Android phones, we can look at all that information computer all overseas and develop things that protect people's Gmail from spam, for example. Yeah, that's such a great example to make it real for people because so often the the difference between computational power and, you know, a data-centred storage is, um, is is really not clear to the everyday person. Completely. You've touched on something here and I, I want to draw you out a little bit more. My colleague Tom Barrett and I recently published a piece examining trust and distrust in technology. We'll put a link to the full piece in the show notes. But essentially we found that across Japan, Australia and the US, more than 80% of respondents trusted American technology, while less than half trusted technology from China. How does Google build and maintain trust? That's a, a very good question, and it's a question both for ourselves and for governments. I think part of the offering that we have is that we do philosophically and from the founding of the company, respect the rights of the individual, their right to privacy, their right to the security of their, their own data. Uh, that There are tensions there, and there shouldn't always be tensions, but there will always be tensions there for governments wanting more access um, and 
sometimes capabilities. So we, a big question that I'm asking myself strategically right now is why should the government of Indonesia choose to work with US companies rather than companies originating from another jurisdiction, a more authoritarian jurisdiction that provides them more intrusive access to the information on their citizens, for example. I think we have to articulate why we care about these human protections and why that matters to us and why we're not going to be hypocritical and ride over themselves, ride over those protections when we think that's in our domestic interests. We have this declaration on the future of the internet that a number of governments, including Australia, signed up to, I think, last year. And this articulates a bit of that vision, but we haven't been consistent and clear about that internationally. People trust us because they think that we will act to protect their information. They need to be able to trust their government to do the same thing. And the government of Indonesia, for example, if we want to compute um, you know, business information from Indonesia in an Australian data centre, should that be a thing that we did, then the Indonesian government would have to trust the Australian government won't just you know, ride roughshod in and access all of that for their own purposes. And this is it's a highly complex environment and evolving rapidly, but this, this idea of trust, consistency, you know, um, walking the walk about what you say, about your values, is, is so important. Well, you've hit on a topic I really wanted to ask you about, um, and that is values. Do you think technology is imbued with the values in the context that it is created in? Um, what does that mean for Google and how it operates globally? Yes, the answer is you make design decisions all the time when you design something right. You have to, the protections that you build in reflect what you think is valuable. And we think about that in the user's interests, and that user's interest has been largely that the, the humanistic approach that looks at individual human rights as one of the priorities when we're building those systems. What we are interested in looking at now is when you look at these modern AI systems and the way that they're developed is essentially drawing upon the corpus of human knowledge that exists. Now, that knowledge, being that we are humans, is riddled with biases, it, particularly historical documentation. And these systems that are drawing upon all this knowledge, be that in a legal context, be that in just a broad creative text or LLM context, they reflect the, I guess you say, granularity of human experience. And that's confronting for a lot of people. It's confronting for us. And we need to, as we're developing this technology, figure out how to make sure that we don't lose track of our values when we're putting things into market, that we look at the biases and the, the systems that we create and adjust for those, that we make sure that we are testing them with the right people so they can tell us things that you know we, as people who are in the developed software development and, and production industry, that we don't think about because we haven't had their life experiences. And that's something that we, we think about deeply when we're developing software. Okay, let's talk a little bit about AI and ethics. Hmm. How do tech leaders like Google balance the race for dominance in something like generative AI with the increasing ethical concerns around the kind of technology? And is this a balance that can be improved? Hmm. Yes, you would have seen a lot of priority around AI ethics over the past few years. If you look at um, the rhetoric um, from ourselves, from Microsoft, from many companies and from governments, people are concerned about making sure that these systems are developed using principles. Increasingly, um, we talk about international standards, and there is an international standards effort around AI that's going on presently, as Australia is deeply involved in that. So we look at this structural approach for having principles, and not only principles, but internal governance around how we operationalise those principles, which is hugely important. We look at international standards and standardisation. And when we're, when we're developing these new systems, we also need to play the role of 
talking about what these systems are actually capable of. Can we put policy controls around the things that this AI system is reflecting? Because as I said, some of them are built on top of a, a corpus of information, particularly the larger models that are, that is, it's human, human, and it's filled with the, the human biases that you would expect. You know, we have a responsibility to do better and to make sure the future is better than the past. And a lot of the, the sort of controls and the ecosystem that we're building from a technical and research standpoint is evolving. So people, there are the top researchers in the world at Google looking at how to actually build bias out of these systems, how you look at data sets to, to assess whether your data set has bias, how you make sure you, you adjust for that so your endpoint system is less biased than the data. Like this is an emerging area of research and technology and something that if you are a young person listening to this podcast, I encourage you to look at in detail and do some research in because it is something that you will be grappling with or we as a society and companies will be grappling with for many years to come. We're going to um, jump into a segment here, which is Emerging Tech for Emerging Leaders. Can you share some of these emerging technologies you think up-and-coming leaders of today and tomorrow should know about? Uh, obviously, generative AI, generative AI is very big at the moment. Um, we The thing that I look at coming down the pipeline is biotechnology and the interface between digital technologies and biotechnology. There's a lot of data that exists out there in medical systems and genomics. The marrying of digital technologies like AI into that environment is something that is exciting and will cause you know a flourishing of human endeavor over the next decade, but it also terrifies me. Um, you know the the lessen the capable increase of capability and the, the the reduction in threshold to entry for this sort of work will only you know that that the ability to build and engage in it will only increase over the coming years as the tool set gets built out. And so. You know, ordinarily, I wouldn't be that concerned, but in an era where we have increasing disconnection, increasing competition, uh, lack of cooperation around this the, the te technology of the future between um, blocks of powers internationally, that becomes a more difficult question. And you know, I would look at you know, international agreement around the regulation of biotechnology and, and those sorts of things as being almost akin to the arms reduction treaties of the Cold War era, right? We need to make sure this, these, these things go very wrong, very fast, and we need to make sure that we have proper controls around those agreed controls at a civilizational level. Are there any technologies that you can't live without and that you would recommend to, you know, up-and-coming leaders or workers, you know, in a professional sense? Mm, I think we are bombarded with information. And rather than technology, it's strange coming from someone from Google, but rather than te technology, I would... Uh, you know, deeply encourage all emerging leaders in technology field and others to look at how you assess information for veracity, from a media article to a scientific paper. How do you look at what people's interests were being exhibited through this? You know, why is this information available? Why is somebody writing about it? Why are they writing about it in the way that they are? Ask yourselves all these questions whenever you read something new and that will set you in good stead critical thinking is a critical asset. <laughs> and we don't want to automate it. Like one of the big questions we ask is, what are the things we don't want to automate? I can't remember any number. I can barely remember my wife's phone number because all the numbers are in my phone. What are the things we do not want to reduce human capacity for? Things like critical thinking. Absolutely. So what should we not automate is as big a question as what could we productively automate? What are some of the key transferable skills that you've seen between the technology and security sectors? 
these are consistent across a number of areas, but things like critical thinking, clear communication. One of the key things I think that is common between the intelligence community that I think practitioners there are particularly good at is the ability to thrive in uncertain, highly changeable environments with limited information and make an assessment that you will back despite there being a high degree of uncertainty. I feel like for some people that lights us up and we like leap up and go, that sounds fun. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And this is one of those things that we, in a highly changing environment like the world of technology, having that comfort, having the ability to identify trends early just because of your training and your natural proclivities there, pardon, that's so valuable and something that, you know, anyone wanting to transition between the intelligence community and the private sector or manage that, which, which can be difficult in a lot of ways, personally and professionally, there are so many skills that you will come away with that are so valuable to not just in technology, but more broadly across the private sector. So we're going to jump to the section on alliances, but first I just want to, I guess, just explore this idea here about dis and misinformation and, um, you know, that we are bombarded by um, mis and disinformation. You know, it's something I've written a lot about. I know you're really interested in it. Can you, I guess, talk me through some of the tensions that you see there, how it might evolve and if there's any work in the in Google space on this? I mean, always. We have a very um, highly productive threat assessment group um, led by a former ASD person called Shane Huntley, who looks at what we call inauthentic activity on our networks, which is someone purporting to be someone that they are not. You know, it's one thing for a foreign diplomat to be under their real name on a service, on a you know service like YouTube or Twitter, saying, "Here are my views." You know, hopefully, someone has the tools to assess those views, and they're usually labelled with you know the foreign government entity. But what about the people who are you know there's a, there are ten thousand people sitting in a shop somewhere. At the computers, building content to push into social networks. You know, they might pay PR firms in foreign jurisdictions. They might do it directly, but they the, the governments are looking at how they leverage tools to propagate their point of view into other markets. And so we have teams that specifically look at identifying those networks, sharing the information between companies, taking those down, notifying people about those. What becomes more complex is. What happens when people in nations where there is a right to speech who reflect you know, views they've heard from a propaganda outlet or who reflect misinformation into the market that they truly believe the question of what we take down is clear in some cases. You know, vaccine misinformation during a pandemic, very clear. Political speech during an election is a hugely contested issue and one that we deeply rely on the guidance of electoral commissions and governments to deal with. You know, we cannot be the source of truth when it comes to free speech in a Western state in particular. We need to make sure that that is being driven by the government, that is being driven by the people who maintain the integrity of elections, and we work very closely with them to do that. So on to the segment about alliances. Um, you know, we ask our intelligence and security leaders largely about nation-state alliances, Um but how do you see Google contributing to the alliance between Australia and the US as well as kind of multilateral forums? Yeah, so we've recently launched something in Australia that you know we're quite proud of here, which is the Digital Future Initiative, and essentially looks at it in those terms. Google has some of the best researchers in the world in very niche areas, and they could be, you know, as I said before, our technical teams are largely located in the US, but they can be global, including people in Australia. 
So what we look at is how we can encourage the best researchers in particular niche areas in the world to work with Australia and for the top people in Australia to work with the top people at Google and vice versa so that we can assist the technical development and industry development in Australia, be that through initiatives like you know Blue Carbon where we worked with DFAT and CSIRO to map seagrass ecosystems in the Pacific, which helps partners engage in climate change discussions more effectively because they know their carbon capture capability of their ecosystems. Looking at things in the broader context of the capability that we can bring from global Google globally to how we can work with people in Australia, develop intellectual property in Australia, support Australian industry, Australian research, Australian diplomatic capability, all of these things are questions that we ask, how can we bring the best of Google to Australia so that we can enhance Australia's interests. And from our part, Australia is a great location. I love living here. We have a huge technical team here. We work with Australian researchers and universities. We develop Australian talent pipelines through schools and the university programs as well. And so how Google and uh, can assist the Australia-US relationship is trying to bridge those gaps and make those connections. You know, we live in a world that seems abstract and technical, but you know, as you particularly as you mature and age into your roles, you see that it is deeply human in so many ways and that making those human connections is the most important thing that we can do. You have worked in multiple countries in tech and security. Um, what are some things we can share with each other? Sure. I think I've worked in primarily New Zealand and Australia on the government side and security in New Zealand and in the sort of high end of the corporate world and at Google in Australia, so in technology. The things we can learn between those contexts, it's an interesting question because in a lot of ways we're very, very similar. And looking back at my career history, I can see moments that are bigger in context that drive particular outcomes. For example, I worked in intelligence through the post 9-11 period. That moment, that terrible moment, enabled this situation where, where intelligence the intelligence community could talk to one another in various jurisdictions in a way that they wouldn't have in the past. I mean, you built connections that you might not otherwise have done when globally the world was looking at and addressing terrorism. There are a, a lot of international connections built during that period that would not have existed if the agency was still primarily looking at nation-state actors and adversarial in, in that way. But that meant that they weren't nations weren't looking at other things that were happening during that time. And so I think being aware of the context between you know, whatever jurisdictions you're working, being aware of the context that you're in and the priorities that you might otherwise have if you weren't in that context and being explicit about those is something that we could all learn from, from this you know period of recent history where we clearly missed adapting to certain <laughs> large geostrategic trends because we were stuck in looking at counterterrorism policy. We were looking at how to adapt to a, a global economic crisis or a pandemic when in the background these big geostrategic changes are happening that were largely uncommented on for a lot of that period. Um, as you know, I recently published a paper highlighting some of the impacts of emerging tech on Intel. Um, given your background in both, I'd love to hear your thoughts on those key tensions. Mm, yes, it is one of those situations where the community, the intelligence community, has had a, like a, a huge advantage in technical expertise for a long time, right? There are things that the IC knows that aren't 
very well known outside of that. Now you have a situation where the technology is evolving so rapidly that you oftentimes have areas of specialty outside the intelligence community where the people working there have a deeper technical understanding than the people inside the intelligence community. And so I think more than ever before, there is a necessity to talk to one another, A, because there is that, uh, that need to share information for that national security standpoint, but also because the ability to respond to intelligence problems, I mean, I'm talking primarily on the defensive side in this context, we need to actually be able to understand what the threat environment looks like. And we can't do I don't think the intelligence community can do that by itself. So the, the, the corporate community certainly can't. And we need to increase that cooperation. We need to have that be structured. We need to make sure that everyone is doing that in an ethical way that their audience, be that the public or their shareholders, are comfortable with and make sure that is done in a way that is supportive of the national interest and, and broadly, you know, the strategic interest globally. One of the segments we have is Eyes and Ears. What have you been reading and listening to or watching lately that might be of interest to our audience? I've been catching up on something which I'm sure everyone listened to a long time ago, which is the, the history podcast, Dan Cullen's History Podcasts, which has been interesting because I grew up in a time when, you know, my father had collected this beautiful series of magazines. It must have been those periodical weekly or monthly magazines on World War II. And so I grew up in my room with this massive history collection about World War II, individual battles, individual you know, weapon systems and, and strategy and all those sorts of things in minute detail. And then I you know, was interested in the Cold War period, and so I read into that. And then I grew up through the period of the Gulf Wars. Um, so I had this very good grounding in recent, his, in recent history, but never really engaged with deep history ancient history and getting back into that in a very pulp way with great storytelling is has been fantastic is there anything else you wanted to add to that yeah i guess one of the things that i've been reading at the moment is um fleet tactics and naval operations so it's <laughs> seriously uh, yeah <laughs> i think it's it's a book that you have to order from the naval war college in the u.s but it's one of those things that we see in the debates in australia at the moment you know this uh, the question of the ta- of Taiwan or the question of our near abroad, and we do live essentially at the base of a large island chain. And maritime operations are increasingly, you know, people are aware that that is increasingly going to be the crux of a lot of competition, geostrategic competition and regional competition. And so, you know, I had no idea really how naval engagements worked. And so it's one of those things where you kind of need to, if you want to, have a reliable analytical lens or opinion about some of these strategic matters I felt like there was a huge gap in my analytical framework there so I've been I've been working on that I want to ask quickly about your thoughts on tech decoupling we're obviously seeing tech decoupling in quite a number of areas between the United States and China Um, where do you think it will go Interesting question and one that is sort of the drumbeat has been continuing for a long time from in the public domain from the Huawei decisions as a a critical issue of trust and now to what we see as a huge, huge intervention in the form of the CHIPS Act in the US and the ramifications that are still spreading through the international environment, the multi-billion dollar supply chain decisions that are being made to change where you know, things are produced to look at the infrastructure and logistics cost of those changes. Now, this is, it's happening, is, is the answer, I guess. This, this decoupling at a high technology level is happening and 
the, the ecosystem around emerging technology and technology production, technology supply chain is so broad that you are seeing interventions happening across multiple fronts from academic cooperation to manufacturing to standardization in, in international standards bodies and people re-engaging or, you know, the Western, Western states reprioritizing international institutions that look at technological standards. Uh, you know, all of these interventions are happening right now and the tension is not going away in the near term. I can't see any indication that there is any... The, 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 the views on both sides of the sort of geopolitical divide, so to speak, the broad geopolitical divide, are, are hardening, not lessening. We also have to think about what I like to call digital lines of communication, which is, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the sea lines of communication concept, right? You know, there are choke points. There are, you know, we look at our logistics in, in terms of that, the vulnerabilities of our logistics from production sources to destinations. And I think about our digital footprint in a similar way. Where are, where are we using compute? Where is that being piped in from? We have, you know, a map of subsea cables. We have big technical infrastructure in various jurisdictions. You know, at what is the risk in that, you know, both from a geopolitical and security standpoint, but even from a policy standpoint, right? So where, where do we want to invest for the future in order to make sure our technical infrastructure and global technical infrastructure footprint is resilient? And what I would love to see, you know, as, a, as someone locally, is for Australia to play a big role in that, but we have no idea at this stage how that is playing out. You've touched on like the scale of Google operations and just how immense they really are. Um, and, you know, on the flip side of that is also you're balancing the individual privacy of users and security, but that also creates a risk that a huge volume of data is held by Google itself. And, and I guess how do, you, how do you kind of balance that tension? Collect the minimum amount of data that we need to to actually execute on our, our products um, that's a fundamental principle of how we design things. And that's not just a, oh, this is reducing data access risk. This is a, every piece of data you collect is costly in terms of it sits somewhere and it, it eats up uh, you know, computational capacity or storage capacity or the electricity you need to run, to run the data centre. So it's a fundamental question of just operational efficiency as well as being a, an issue of you know, we, we only want to collect the data because we think this is fundamentally where the world is going that we need to not just hoover up everything because that's not it's not commercial it's not efficient and and it is just you know, it's poor design okay so is there anything um we're just going to the segment on need to know is there anything i didn't ask you already that would have been great to cover no i think you've been pretty thorough actually <laughs> <laughs> now a lot of the things that i was thinking about raising in in as as potential you know, wild cards. We've actually gotten to already, so it's been quite fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for such a fun conversation, Alex. It's been really fun. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Technology and Security. I've been your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Tech Program at the United States Studies Centre, based at the University of Sydney. If there was a moment you enjoyed today or a question you have about the show, feel free to tweet me at M-I-A-H underscore H-E or send an email to the address in the show notes. You can find out more about the work we do on our website, also linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you soon.